So last week, uh, I uh, used an illustration about a Broadway play. So the um, pastor was reading about a Broadway play, and in the Broadway play, nothing was working. It was kind of a post-mortem after the play had been released, and nothing was working, and everybody knew why it wasn't working. It wasn't working because the lead actress wasn't up for the role, wasn't, wasn't good enough for the role as an actor. And so the director made a choice with only maybe two or three more weeks of preparation and decided to take one of the supporting actor, actresses and, and switch with her. And immediately things began to work. And when the play released, it was a success and things went well. And then it was Tim Keller who was telling the story. And he says, the problem that we often have in life is, and it really goes back and pretty it's one way of explaining the problems that we have in our world through a biblical lens, is that we live life as, as if it was a play where we are playing the lead role. When God should be playing the lead role, we should be in a supporting role. We don't even need God to be the director of our lives where we are the lead role. We need God in the lead role, his purposes, his agenda, and then we support him in that lead role. So Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, worship is the strategy by which, which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. It's one of the ways that we put God in the center of our lives. We're reminded of who should be in the center of our lives. And today we're going to look at three keys to unlocking worship. Worship that's meaningful, worship that means something and, and something happens and it impacts our lives because it, it really goes deep into our hearts and comes from deep in our hearts. Uh, we're going to be looking at a worship. What, what does it take to have the kind of worship or to participate in the kind of worship that interrupts our preoccupation with ourselves? Because it's not easy. It's not easy to do that. And we're going to see three keys to that, and we're going to see it from Revelation chapter 4 and 5, where the Apostle John records a vision uh, that, he, that he has, that God gives him. Now, we know that the book of Revelation is a very difficult book to understand, and so most of the time we just avoid it. But I want to tell you two things uh, that will maybe help you a little bit in understanding it, although it, both of these things need lots of elaboration. And one of them is that when John writes the book of Revelation, it is a time of great persecution in the church. It's towards the end of the first century. Apostle John gets this vision from God, and he uses uh, common apocalyptic imagery from his day and mixes it together with imagery from the Old Testament prophets in order uh, to communicate a timeless message for his people. So it's meaningful for them, and it's also meaningful for us. There are all kinds of ways of interpreting the book of Revelation. But there's widespread agreement on this, and that is that the book of Revelation makes one overarching point. And that point is that in this age, this age is filled with trouble because we're locked in a spiritual battle with powers of evil. That's, that's the biblical perspective. That's the biblical worldview. And God still reigns in spite of that. God still reigns, and in the end, God is going to win. And the way that the story goes is that we win too if we stop pushing God away, if we stop putting ourselves at the center, if we recognize the rightful place of God and we put our faith in Jesus Christ and put him in his rightful place in our lives and in our hearts. So John is given a vision, and this vision is a vision of what is happening on a cosmic level. We're going to read through 
both of these chapters. And I'm just going to stop every once in a while to kind of reflect a little bit on what we just read, and then I'm going to also set things up a little bit. So if you have an outline, that's what all those points are there, and then we'll, we'll look at three keys. Uh, but John is invited, we're going to see in a moment, John is invited to look into heaven like a door is there. And he's invited to look in the door and see what's happening in heaven. And what he sees is worship. And what he sees in this worship is that God is on his throne, that God is a sovereign ruler. That's, that's what it means when you see someone in their, on a throne. It means they are sovereign ruler. But because of what is being said all around him, it focuses not just on the fact that he is ruler, but that he is holy and that he is worthy and that he is the creator of everything. God is brilliant. I mean, literally brilliant. Uh, he's so bright that all that John can describe are like reflections that are coming. He can't see God, and the scripture uh, makes this point over and over again that if we were to see God in all of his glory in the state that we're in right now, we wouldn't survive it. And so all he sees is the glimmer of God. We, we have a tendency throughout all of our lives and all ages, hum, hum, humanity has a tendency to diminish God and to shrink God and to downsize God and every once in a while, we get these visions. You see them in the Old Testament as well, where you get this vision of God on a throne and glory and heavenly beings and all of this. It's a way of trying to break through our downsizing of God to recognize the greatness and glory of God. We're going to see in this passage that God isn't alone, and this is really important. God isn't alone. He's surrounded by spiritual beings. When in the Old Testament, the prophets would get a view of this heavenly throne room, always surrounded by spiritual beings. God has never been alone. The spiritual beings were created by God, but God within himself is one God in three persons. God has never been alone. That's why we are people of community. We're made in his image. We need other people. We need each other because God is never alone. He's surrounded by a heavenly council. When Jesus comes to earth, what does he do? He calls 12 disciples. And one of the Gospels says specifically, I mean, there's no doubt, he called 12 disciples partially for the mission that they were going to accomplish, all of that, so that he could multiply himself. But when the Gospel of Mark tells us he called 12 disciples, it says this is the purpose, to be with him. To be with him. You see this as a pattern throughout Scripture. We're not called to be alone. We're called to live in community. It's, it's necessary for us to be be with others in order to be the people that God has called us to be. So we pick up in chapter five, 4, verse 1, and here's what he sees. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and a voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumble, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered, they, uh, were covered with eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion, and the second was like an ox, and the third 
had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives on forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay down their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you, are, you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. Okay, we're going to stop there, one of the purposes of this vision is to ground our worship in the heavenly worship. First time I ever heard this, I remember that, that whole idea that there's worship that's continually happening in heaven, and we're joining in on that just absolutely grabbed me and, 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 and began to transform how I saw what happens when I gather with other believers or even when I worship by myself. Our worship of God here on earth always joins in Worship that's continually happening in heaven. As we continue to read the book of Revelation, we learn that the scroll that no one can open is really important. Uh, the scroll contains God's plan of redemption for humanity and redemption for the earth. So it's very important to be seen, for it to be unfolded, for it to be carried out and executed. And the fact that no one in heaven or on earth or below the earth or is able to take the scroll and execute the plan is tragic, and John gets that. It's tragic that nobody is able to do that. But next, we're going to pick up here again. One of the elders interrupts the Apostle John, his weeping, and, um, and there is, he tells him there is only one, there is only one who can indeed accomplish the plan of redemption. And it becomes clear who that one is by the imagery that's used and by the story that's told and by the returning to the image over and over again throughout this book. So we pick up in verse 5 where it says, And one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb look, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests, uh, 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 to serve our God 
and they will reign on the earth. All right, so people from every people, tribe, and nation, language is assembled around God. And it's important for John to see this for one thing because it points to the worldwide mission of the church. Jesus told us to go into all the world. He said, go and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's what it's about. It's about bringing more people into a relationship with God, a relationship of worship. It's important for John to see this also because it shows the beauty of diversity in worship. It's something we should crave for now because it's something that we can look forward to when Jesus returns. And when John, uh, then John sees, uh, and we're going to see here as we read it, that all of heaven breaks open in worship. Look at verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. All right. Three keys to unlocking uh, a genuine heartfelt worship in our lives. And the first one is to recognize the the inevitability of worship. So as you see this scene unfold... And by the end, you see it clearly said, everything is worshiping. Everything, everybody, everything is worshiping God. The elders are heavenly spiritual beings, probably representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Now, how do we know that? Is the way scholars know this is because of the way these images are used over and over again and what they point back to in the Old Testament. And sometimes they're described in the book of Revelation. And when they're described, you've got the key to understanding it. All right, so these probably represent that. There's good reason to believe that the four creatures that were described there, one like an ox, one with the face of a man, are representing all creatures on earth. What you have here is everyone and everything worshiping God. Because you can't not worship. It's inevitable. You can't not worship. Harold Best put it this way. He said, we're not created to worship, nor are we created for worship. We are created worshiping. It's just, it's, it's who we are. It's what we've been made to do. As you read Genesis 1 and 2, where we see it's the way it's supposed to be, there's no need for a temple, there's no need for a church. It's like the Garden of Eden is, is the temple. It is the church. And um, Adam and Eve, everything that they do is an act of worship. As they tend the garden, as they go about their work on a daily basis, they are worshiping God with their very actions. Life and worship is seamless in the garden, and there's a sense in which it's seamless still today for every single one of us. There's a sense in which every single one of us in our daily lives, are everything that we do is an act of worship. Every moment we live for something. We're living for something. Even when we're just, you know, going out of habit, you know, just driving to work, and all of a sudden you go, where did I go? Even, even when we're out of habit, 
that trajectory, the fact that we got into our car and started driving or got on a bus and went to work, whatever it is, as we're going, even that trajectory has been impacted by what we consider to be most important, what we worship, what we put as tops in our lives. You can't not worship. And one of the keys to unlocking heartfelt and genuine worship in your life is to be aware of the inescapability of worship. When we're aware of the inescapability of worship, what we can do is we can begin to identify the idols that are in our life, the false gods that are in our lives, the things that will leave us broken, the things that can't, can't live up to what we need, what God is and who God is. And so we can identify what they are, we can repent of them, which means to change your mind, change your direction, and we can arrange our life in such a way that God is more and more rightly at the center of our thoughts and our actions. Now, you understand, this is really, really hard to do. I mean, to worship all day long, to, to do everything from driving to work, to the work that you do, to the conversations that you have, your friendships, your entertainment choices, your uh, time with your friends after work, all that, to live all of that as unto God? You, you understand that that's why Christianity can't be a casual thing in our lives? We, we just can't casually go into what it means to follow Jesus, just say, I am a disciple of Jesus, and just casually walk along, because it is so hard for this to happen in our lives. So much change has to take place. So much renewal has to happen in our minds, and we'll never reach it in this world, but it's a process where we become more and more worshiping creatures in everything that we do all day long. Our faith can't be a casual thing. It has to be something that we're cultivating um, through spiritual practices, personal, corporate, when we get together, practices that help shape the way that we think, the way that we look at our world, that help us focus and put our glory, put the glory in the right thing and glorify the right things in our lives and delight in the right things in our lives. Because when we put it in the wrong things, it's destructive to our world. It's destructive to us. It's dishonoring to God. All right, so that's the first key, is just recognize you can't escape worship it's inevitable, our lives, we're worshiping creatures. And, and you don't have to be a Christian to believe that, by the way. You don't have to be a Christian to believe that. It is, it's, it's just there for us to see we are all worshiping something. Even if we don't believe in God, we're worshiping something. Uh, second key is to understand the essence of worship. Understand what worship is about. And this is, this is, the, um, this is the center of this particular sermon. This is what I want you to get more than anything else today if um, when you leave here so um, we're going to do a little bit of a thought experiment and I, I think uh, I think it'll help you understand what worship is better and appreciate it better and it can enrich your your life uh, through this so I want you to think about what, it, what what is it that you follow what is it that you really care about is there a, a sports team or sports in general or a golfer is there a band or a musician or maybe you have a big interest in a particular instrument, and so you follow everything with that. Maybe you're a video gamer. You love video games, and you play video games all the time. Maybe that's the thing that you do. Maybe there's a type of music that you love. Maybe there's a historical era. Civil War, World War II, Revolutionary War. Maybe there's some people from history, or a city. Uh, Anything that you have a keen interest in, you might say that it's, it's kind of a hobby for you, you follow this thing. All right. What do you do when you follow? 
something, meaning you, you, you're you know, kind of obsessed with it, or at least you're very deeply interested in it. What do you do? You, you study it, right? Uh, you read about it. You might listen to podcasts. You might watch YouTube videos on it. Uh, some of the most popular channels are things that, that, that one group of people thinks it's absolutely intriguing, and someone else goes, how in the world? Un- unwrapping packages. There's some people that are not laughing right now. They watch it. Um, there's uh, on YouTube, but also there's, there's a whole app and a different platform for watching people play video games. And there are like hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of followers on this thing. At any given time, 100,000 people watching someone playing a video game live. And so what is it that you're interested in? It's easy to look at someone else and say, how in the world can anyone watch golf? or soccer, or football, whatever it is. How in the world can anybody do that? But the reality is that when we're into something, we, we study it. We have a deep interest. We study the details. If it's, if it's a sport, we might study the stats, and we know the stats of our favorite players, all that sort of thing. You know about this. You talk about other peop- with other people about the thing that you're interested in. Then when your team plays, or you go to a historical site of the era that you're interested in, or you're... You go to a concert to hear a musician that you love or a band that you love. Whatever it is, something happens inside of you. You kind of sit up. You might stand up. You might be reverent or you might be cheering. There's all kinds of things that literally happen to you physically. Your heartbeat speeds up. Something happens to you when that thing is happening. That's all akin to worship. I'm not saying if you, if you go to a football game and get excited, you are an idolater. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's akin to worship. It's this focus. It's this interest that we take in something. When you immerse yourself in something of deep interest to you, you express honor towards it, delight in it, deep interest, wonder. All these things get to the essence of worship. I'll give you a definition, but this is way better than a definition to understand what worship is about. And you see this in this passage. These heavenly beings are enthralled with the one who sits on the throne and then the one who comes out of the throne, the lamb, the slain lamb, the slit throat lamb that comes out of that throne. And listen, if you heard me reading that, followed along, or you've read it before, and you think, oh my goodness, that is, sounds so boring. There, there have been people, I, I read, and I can't remember who it was, there was a famous atheist from about a century ago who said, I would rather be annihilated at my death for my soul to continue existing than to have to spend all my time in heaven <laughs> for the rest of eternity. But if you, if you look at that and you go, that just, that just doesn't sound really exciting. Is that really what eternity is going to be? Just admit it. Say, say so. But I want you to continue the thought experiment with me. All right? Continue the thought experiment. Think about that most enthralling thing, event, person, experience um, in line with your deepest interest. You have this deep interest. Now think of the event where it gets showcased or the place that you go. Think about that. And now think about being invited into the most immersive experience possible of that. So you've not just gone to a historical site 
somehow, magically, through fantasy, science fiction, something, you're taken back to that site when the event happened. Or you're invited to the Super Bowl. If you're a football fan, you're invited to the Super Bowl. Your favorite team is in it. And you've not just been invited to take one of the seats. You've been invited to stand on the sideline. And for some crazy reason, the coach even calls timeouts to come and talk to you about it. <laughs> well, this is what's happening in the game, and this is what we're going to have to do, and we've got a problem here. And you're like, wow. <laughs> it's a totally immersive experience. You're at a concert, but you're not on the 300th row. You're on the front row, and afterwards you're invited back behind stage. And it's not just like you're walking, like going like this. They are inviting you in. They are taking you to the after party. They got their arm around you. What you think? And, tell, you know, and talking about music and just totally immersive experience. All right? You got that in your mind. What is it for you? What is that total immersive experience? Okay. Now understand that... Um, that on that throne that John sees as he looks through that door into heaven is all that about your immersive experience. Is all of that and infinitely more times infinity. It's all of that times infinity and it never gets old. Here's what I'm trying to say. You and I, we have no idea what it's like to to look at God. <laughs> we have no idea. And we think, we do. Maybe some of you don't, but a lot of us do. Like, it would be so boring to just worship God. And it's not what heaven is going to be 20 and 21. We're going to see next week. Heaven is more than just, you know, kind of bowing down and worshiping God. But, but, but to be in that, it's a spectacle. And we watch lesser spectacles and get engrossed in them. Football game. Football game. Looked it up. Average, I think, is three hours and 12 minutes to watch a football game. There is 11 minutes of action in reality. You, all the soccer lovers here know that. They're, they always, when, if I make fun of soccer, they, they, they bring up that, and I say, yeah, but at least they score. <laughs> so think about the things that we watch. I mean, some of you watch golf. I think that's crazy. I, I don't get it at all. You know, I don't get it. But some of you watch golf because you're into golf and you're, you're and all, because you're into it, you're wanting to watch and the drama of it and all that sort of thing. And to me, it's like, there's no drama at all. I don't know who any of those people are. Oh, I know Tiger Woods. That's it. I don't know who any of those people are. We watch lesser spectacles and we can watch them for hours and totally be engrossed and talk about them on and on and on. It's all that and more. Here is the God who created athletic ability. Here's a God who created, if you're interested in the galaxies and in, in what's happening in, in, you know, throughout the whole universe, this is the God that can take you there, can take you to the black hole and explain it all to you and show you what's happening in every black hole in all the universe. This is a God who created time, and so he can take you in any place in history and, and take you there. You understand? This is the greatest spectacle, the greatest spectacle of all time. So it's not crazy, and it's not boring, unless everything bores you, and maybe everything does. So what about now? Yeah, that's, you know, there's a day when we're going to be face-to-face -face with God. We'll see him on his throne. What about now? Um, how does it inform our worship now and the way that we live our lives now? Three things. 
The first one is theology. I mean, people like me, preachers, we have to be really careful not to get too theological because we know we'll lose 75% of the people if we get too theological. I mean, just really get into the nitty-gritty of theology. But theology is a study of God. And we think, well, it will lose the kids for sure. They're sitting there if we get theological. But the reality is those same kids can watch a person playing video games and not get lost at all. The intricacies of the game and the absolute from someone like me, the absolute, are you kidding me? That's interesting because I just, I'm not into video games. Not because there's anything wrong with it. It's just I'm not into video games. We should, we should cultivate an interest in theology. We really should cultivate an interest in knowing more and more about God. Get to know his stats, <laughs> in a way. Get to know his character. You're interested in a celebrity's character? A historical figure's character? The Bible is a constant unfolding. You can never take it all in. I mean, it's, it's a lifetime, and you still won't be able to take in all the things that we can learn about God in this world, and we are limited by our sight in this world. We can't even, there's, there's so much that he can't even explain to us or help us to see. So we need to cultivate, cultivate, crazy, a love of theology. We should want it. Second, liturgy. Oh, let me uh, get back to something else I had in the outline. Which worship keys off of God's revelation of himself. That's what happens when we worship. That's why we always spend time in the word. It's a big part. And then we respond while we're still together. And we continue our respond when, response when we leave. And that's what's happening in this passage. It keeps saying, you are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy. And each time, what does it do? It says, for or because. It's giving an exposition of God. It's giving us theology. The next one is liturgy. Liturgy is a word that means the work of the people. So it's when you gather for worship, it's the work of the people. It's what we do together. Uh, another uh, reference point that we have for liturgy is the order of worship, the order of the things we do, the work of the people. So the liturgy, when we gather, tells the story of God. It tells his story, the gospel tells the story of God. It's, it's a drama that unfolds. It's a story that is unfolding. It's a story that touches with our story. We're reminded of our story and how our story is unfolding. And, and we begin to see the world more and more through this. We, we think in stories. Our lives. It, if I ask you to tell me about your life, you'll, five minutes you'll give me all the statistics of your life. And then if I keep pushing, you'll start telling me stories that tell me who you are and the story that you're living. If I tell you, if I ask you, what, what's, what's meaningful for you? What's your future? What are you looking forward to? And if you're wired in that way, you're going to do it. You're, you're going to have specifics, and then if I really push, you're going to start telling me stories of what you see for your future. The liturgy of a worship service, especially the historic liturgy, the liturgy that we use, is a liturgy of the gospel. So that first movement, it's on the front of your worship program, prepare, has got three or four movements in it of a call to worship. The absolute privilege of being called into worship. You heard a call to worship if you were here when we started early because I have a long sermon. So some of you missed it. <laughs> um, the, uh, we have time of confession. We have time of hearing assurance of forgiveness in Christ. 
It's a story that's unfolding. We spend time in the Word. We pray a prayer to, to invite the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. We finish and we, have, we, we do the story of communion. We celebrate the story of communion, that Jesus' body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. We, that's, that's, it's a story. You know, it's not... Um, this is what it is, you know, exactly. The theology is a story. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, we pray because it's a story. We sing. It's part, you see it in this passage. They're singing. All the elements of worship are coming out through there. So it should impact how, how we worship. The liturgy rehearses that story, the story that we should be living, the better story than the story that we're making up for ourselves with us as the star. And then finally, relationships. Expressing and experiencing God. Expressing ourselves towards God and experiencing the presence of God. Prayer, praise, connection with God, connection with other people. If God is surrounded by people, if God within himself is community, if he's made us in his image and we need community, he calls us into community, he calls us to live out all these one another's, love one another, forgive one another, care for one another. That should inform our daily lives, the way that we live our lives. And you see all of this modeled in this heavenly worship. When we understand what worship is, we get more out of every aspect of our worship. We have at least a potential of that. We always are a distracted people, right? I mean, it's always, we're always easily distracted into other things, but when we get it, we can step into it and get more out of it, and we begin to long for it, and when life interrupts our ability, or when we, our priorities get out of whack, and worship isn't a part of our daily lives, and isn't a part of our gathering life together, we begin to long for it deeply, like thirst for it. The last key is to experience the glory in worship, experience the glory in worship. Look at verse 10 of chapter 5. You have been made to be a kingdom and priests to serve God, and they will reign on the earth. Priests and kings reigning, a kingdom of priests and kings that reign on the earth. That's our glory. That's our glory. It's a reflected glory. It's God's glory because it's his mission. He empowers it. He makes it possible. But it's part of the way that we experience the glory of God. So when we live out our priestly and our kingly role as the scripture describes it, which is laid out in Genesis 1 and 2, when we live that out, what we're doing is we are experiencing the glory of God. Experiencing the glory of God. Not just glorifying it, we're experiencing the glory of God. At priests, a priest simply means a couple of things. One is a priest represents the people to God. And so when we come up here and we pray at these light stations, and we're specifically, as we're lighting a candle, we're praying for the light of Christ to shine in the life of someone who's far from God, you're living out the priestly role. You're living out the glory. You're experiencing the glory. The priests also represent the God to people. God to people. And so when you 
in a conversation out in the commons, turn to someone and you say, how's, how's your week? And they say, well, it's, it's a rough week. And you give words of encouragement or you just stop for a moment and just do a little tweet prayer. <laughs> Let me pray for a moment for you. You're representing God to that person. You are the means by which God is ministering to them. You are experiencing glory. And you're worshiping. You're living out. Last week or two weeks ago, we had baptisms. And two of the girls on Saturday night who were baptized, they wanted their baptism. It was part of their story. It was part of their faith story. They wanted their baptism and their testimony and their baptism to impact. And they told us to impact their grandfather who is dying of cancer, who doesn't know God personally. They showed him the video. They went down to visit him on the floor. They showed him the video. And he received Christ as his Lord and Savior. They were carrying out a priestly role. You don't have to be an adult to carry out a priestly role. When you go to work every day and you do your work, whatever it is that you do, school, um, teaching, engineer, administrative assistant, whatever it is, and you do it as unto the Lord, you're carrying out your priestly role, your kingly role, your kingly role, just like Adam and Eve tending the garden, naming the animals, and you're experiencing glory of worship when you're doing it as unto God. You can experience glory and worship when we gather, and you can do it when we scatter. My prayer is that you will unlock genuine, heartfelt worship in your life, that all of us will. Let's pray.